I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 10 beginning with verse 17. And that's a uh, last, uh, there's two, verse, two verses left in 17, I mean in chapter 10, and then we'll move to 11 through uh, and uh, read from there. It says, uh, Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people, the uh, leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is a man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? And he shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, or Tob. And worthless fellows gathered around themselves, or gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this day, and I just ask for your blessings upon this time that you might grace us in a very special way with your presence working in our lives and uh, in our midst and I just pray that we will experience you in a unique way we know that this can only happen by you and by your grace so we just ask you to work in a mighty way where you might get honor and you might get glory from this service and in this service in Jesus name amen uh, there was a film on TV years ago. My son loved it. He was teaching English at the time, and it was Dead Poets Society. Anybody remember that one? The main character was played by Robin Williams. And in that movie, he brings a, and, and it's elite school. It's uh, very elite. And he brings a group of young boys into the school hall. Uh, and there he has them observe some photographs of faces of past generations of students, now long gone and are dead. Faces that the boys hadn't really ever paid that much attention to. They really, a lot of them had just ignored them. And so as he did this, his point was unique. And that was that all these faces at one time were boys like them. And they all thought they were invincible. And they planned great things for their lives. And now those fires of anticipation that they had, in every case, because they were dead, were extinguished. 
So his message to the boys was, seize the day. Seize the day. And that's very important. But you know, God goes even deeper than that. He says, make a difference now for eternity. Not just the here and now, but for eternity. We're going to look at someone that needed to, if you will, seize the day for eternity. And we will look at him more in detail in the next few messages that we have on this one. The Israelites were in need of a leader. They had experienced prosperity and peace for 45 years under two leadership. That was Tola and Jer. And under the last one, or the latter one, Israel began to fall back into idolatry and sin. And after Jer, the uh, Israelites experienced some affliction. And the afflictions came by the Lord allowing the Philistines and the sons of Ammon to come in and get their attention for 18 years. It says, And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. So God allowed this affliction and desperation to get Israel's attention. And he does the same thing with us also. They began to cry out to God. He got their attention. They began to cry out to God in remorse so. But God would not do anything for them because it was not of repentance. He allowed it to continue on until they truly saw their sin, their state and their sin. And so... Not until they saw the situation for what it, was, what it really was did God begin to deliver them. God desired for them to repent, and he was waiting on them. He's long-suffering, even in this, and so he waited for them to repent. And then when they repented, then he stepped in to the situation. We see this over and over and over again with the judges. And in the providence of God, everything came to a head uh, when the Ammonites and the Philistines were causing this, this uh, crushing upon the Israelites, this affliction and desperation to occur during that time. And the Ammonites regrouped their forces for battle, and Israel reassembled at Mizpah. And uh, war was obviously imminent at the time, and Israel apparently had no qualified leaders because you remember that they were living in idolatry. They had gotten away from God. They were really, and they didn't really trust, as we'll talk about in, in just a bit, they didn't trust their leaders because their leaders had taken advantage of them. Many people think that, you know, that they can't make a difference in this world. And we're going to look at one who probably thought the same thing. You know, some think, well, you know, I don't have the ability to be a great politician up in Washington to make a difference. Or I don't have ability to, to be a president, to, to lead the country. Or I don't, you know, I'm not qualified for the CEO position over there. Or I'm not a, an inventor. Or, I, you know, 
I'm no great athlete. I'm not a hero from war. I, uh, I, I'm not a glamorous movie star. I'm not even a famous author. Nothing is really there to write home about in my life. Many people in this world feel that way. No big difference maker as far as I'm concerned. Maybe you felt that way at times. And on top of that, some of these people come from dysfunctional families. That makes it even worse. Maybe the parents didn't want them. Maybe they were raised in the slums. Maybe they were adopted. Or nobody would adopt them. They came from what many would call families or areas of nobodies. And, you know, you, you just feel, when you do that, feel like that you're not going to amount to nothing. You feel like you're going to remain a nobody so often. Well, we'll be looking at a man that had every right to think that, Jephthah. That he would never amount to anything. That he couldn't make a difference for Israel. This man, man found out, though, to make a meaningful difference meant making a difference, as we talked about earlier, for eternity. And not just the here and now. You see, many perspectives needed to be changed. And they need to be changed for us also. If we want to make a difference for God in his kingdom, we've got to look at situation and our situations differently. And we, we must look at ourselves differently. That's what really counts. We need to get God's perspective. We think that it cannot happen for us and we, because we tend to measure ourselves according to someone else's measure. That's what happens in our, our society today. But God's ways are not always our ways, are they? And so what delights God is he delights in making nobodies somebodies because they're willing to be molded for his kingdom's sake. And what God desires for first is our availability and then our obedience. And we as believers so often stereotype leaders and workers in, in so many different areas to the point where other people think that, you know, they can't make a difference. They can't be a success. Now talking from the ministry with pastors and other ministers, so often, they think that you have, to be at a, you have to be a certain age to reach a society. I think that way a lot of times, unfortunately. You have to have a family of two or more children to reach families with other children. You have to have graduated from proper schools with proper degrees and many times already have a certain amount of serving time with those degrees from churches. And not only that, with considerable successes. We even dictate what success is supposed to look like. And I had to say it, but we ministers are, are the worst at times with that, aren't we? But this is a pattern that God 
uses in his life to let us know that all of us can be successes. God doesn't have stereotypes. If we need proof of that, all we have to do is look at judges. And look at this man, Zephtha. He is a unique man with whom we find great conflicts and contrasts. There's the ugly blotches in his life, but there's also some wonderful moments. Now, let's look at this man that God made a difference with. His name was Jephthah. Now, he wasn't perfect, and he made mistakes just like all of us, but God used him because his availability and his obedience. Now, we'll look at this. Uh, we need to remember that what is true with Jephthah is true with any believer who will make themselves available and faithful. In verses 1 through 3, he was rejected by his family and community. Said that he was the son of a harlot when his, son, when his brothers got old enough. And, you know, they drove him out of the house. And he fled to live in the land of Tob, or Tob, with worthless fellows. Gathered themselves about Jetha, and they went out with him. In other words, he formed this band of warriors. His life also parallels David's life in many ways, at many times. We see that with Jephthah, God's ways are not our ways, with the people of Israel at this time. That means that God doesn't produce Christians the way General Motors produces cars. It's not an assembly line where angels help God roll off some assembly line in heaven, differing only in a few options, or with a few options. Many Christians suffer from severe inferiority complexes because they don't fit into the mold that we so often try to make them fit into. They think Christians should come from, you know, uh, certain families and be certain things before they can use, be by used, uh, or used by God in certain ways. Sometimes it comes from the fault of their own, and sometimes it comes from listening to other believers. We look at Christian leaders who we think they're great. We think that other Christian leaders are not so great because they haven't measured up to what successes these Christian leaders seem to possess. And we come up with our own mode for greatness. I've even heard preachers think that their, you know, their school is the best. When I was going to school, it was competition. This school is the best. This school is harder. This school, you, you learn more and all this and you play this game. And I played that game too. And they had to be a graduate of a certain school before, you know, you would consider them uh, usable or, or whatever. I also heard preachers say that if your church isn't growing the way that they think that it's growing, then it, quali you know, it uh, qu or qualifies for growth, then uh, you, you're not a successful preacher. And we don't know all that's going on in, in the midst. We've seen it here. I've even heard of one preacher telling another preacher, and this went on within this generation. They were talking about another preacher, and he was having some difficulty, and so he confronted and, and wanted comforting and encouragement from these preachers and asked for or, or was wanting this and was really asking for it when in reality when these two preachers got together 
they said that he probably wasn't even called into the ministry. Just because he was hurting and he was feeling this way. You know, one of these preachers has gone on to be with the Lord since then. And I would imagine that God set him down and said, Hey, the mold that you were trying to put this hurting preacher in is not the mold that I have for preachers. Or non-preachers. I called him. Thank God there's no such mode. Thank God that he does a calling. Thank God that he does a maturing. And thank God that he is the one who measures successes. He's the one that we're going to have to answer to. Missionary in Ethiopia said this about their experience. They said the key to exciting growth of the church in Ethiopia is the Holy Spirit. His human agents in all of this are the Ethiopian evangelists. As for the men themselves, there is little, humanly speaking, to commend them as missionaries. Without exception, they would be rejected by the North American mission societies. Their average education is grade four. Some of them have no formal training. One minister's wife was a former uh, barmaid with four children, one of whom is a hunchback. He preaches at a remote uh, point two days uh, uh, journey into uh, Baga or Banga and last time I went to his church he said I attended the baptism of 88 believers another minister of 25 years has six fingers on one hand he is well educated by local standards he says having completed six grades as well as some Bible training his wife has TB his church too is growing he says, with 24 baptized one month, while many more believed. You see, Zephtha was a leader in society of the unacceptable. Yet God in his sovereign wisdom chose to use and work through him. Imagine that. Some Christians would think that God made a mistake. Why? Because he didn't fit their mode. Let's look more closely at his life. The obvious fact was his family background. His mother was a common prostitute. His father must have had enough concern for him as a child that he decided to take him in and let him stay there in his house, give him some kind of legal status, but that did not keep him from experiencing the scars of his parents' sins. He was unwanted by his half-brothers, and when they reached the age where they could successfully get rid of him, they got rid of him. They drove him away from the family and away from his home, his community. He became a social outcast. And in that society, that was tough. That was a horrible way to be treated. They just didn't do that, the Israelites. And so Zephthah grew up being an outcast. He was a man alone in the world. He was what the world would call a loser. Alone with the taunts and the jeers of the people ringing in his ear, he had to live out there in the wilderness. And the wilderness that he lived in was right on the edge where it was on the fighting edge, the, uh, where there was always the enemy trying to attack the Israelites. Zephthah was forced to 
lived there. No one offered him counsel or gave him food even for his journey. Alone he was except for God. The grace of God was at work in this man's life, rescuing him from an apparently hopeless future. And let's look in, uh, in the verses to follow in verse four, uh, 3, 4, and 5 and 6. It says, So Zephtha fled from his brothers, lived in the land of Tob or Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephtha, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Zephtha from the land of Tob, and they said to Zephtha, Come and be our chief, that we might fight against the sons of Ammon. When he left his family and hometown in desperation, he headed to the frontier area of Tob. This was the kind of place, as I mentioned earlier, where the Israelites and their enemies lived in constant conflict. So he had to learn to be, to be a fighter. And it seems that he became the Robin Hood, if you will, a leader of a band of rejects who uh, functioned unofficially as a police force. He uh, skillfully uh, brought together this, these men to protect the Israelites on the frontier area for a price. His life paralleled David's life in many ways, and the period was very important for Zetha. He uh, learned military warfare and strategy, and God later used this in his, uh, to bring honor and glory to him as he fought uh, the fight for Israel. I'm glad that God does not submit to uh, human prejudices, and he is not limited by social or parental or environmental factors that men consider determinative as to whether a person's going to be a success or not. We're not prisoners of our past, no matter how desperate that past was. God delights in using the unusable and in making the ugly beautiful. He was overseeing Zephyr's gifts long before they were to be used by God or in God's service. God never wastes anything in any of his children's lives. Dr. Lewis Johnson, who taught at Dallas Theological Seminary and, and pastored a church there in North Dallas for many years, he was an avid golfer and a good golfer, and he went to college to be a, uh, even a better golfer and play on the golf team. But to play on the golf team, he was late in enrolling or whatever, and, and the only course that was available was, guess what? Classical Greek. He didn't like Greek. He didn't like foreign language. But it was the only class that he could take so that he could play golf that year. So he enrolled in it. Guess what? He fell in love with, not golf, but Greek. He was an unbeliever. And so at the time he, uh, he went through school, he dropped out of golf and he continued through school. And, and so he got a job afterwards as a salesman for the insurance but classical greek didn't do him too good too much uh, good in in selling insurance uh, people they sold insurance really became confused with him speaking greek so uh so he uh soon left that and headed to dallas and in the meantime he got saved and when he got saved he entered into dallas theological seminary and became a professor there new testament greek 
and also pastor a church. As he grew in the Lord, he felt called to prepare himself for ministry. And he just continued to grow and to teach others how to become equipped in the Lord. You see, God was not, he was not wasting those years even before he was saved. He was preparing the man. Our pre-conversion experience is often seen as complete wasteland experiences. But not so with God. The same Lord who was sovereign in your salvation was sovereign before your salvation. Nothing brought to him is wasted. He can use it. In his hand, even broken fragments have purpose and meaning. He learned leadership also. He not only learned military warfare and strategy, but he learned leadership. He got this small band of worthless men together, and, and he became their leader. And he, he developed some qualities there. But not only that, he learned to know God. The quietness and aloneness, when, he, when everybody else rejected him, gave him time to talk with Jehovah God. And you'll see this in, in the passage later on. Zephthah's family background didn't help him that much. Because if, if you'll notice, he came from a torn background, but not only that, Israel didn't help him that much. The background that he had with Israel, because they were a nation that neglected God and, their, and God's truth for them at the time. But Zephthah used the personal name of God more than any other person in the book of Judges. Isn't that amazing? Once again, his parallel is much like David. A, a group of broadcasters was holding a conference with some Soviet Christians, and one brother was asked, how did you manage to survive 32 years of Soviet labor camp? His answer was gentle but powerful. Brethren, even a desert looks like a flower garden when you're in communion with the Lord. Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? Perhaps Jephthah did not have a father or a mother that accepted him, not the way that they should have, but he did have the Lord. And that rejection seemed to have drawn him to the Lord and perhaps experienced something much like these Russian Christians did in seeing a garden come out of a desert experience. So he was called to lead. And it, in, in chapter 11, verses 4 through 11, it says, And it came about uh, while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. It happened when the sons of Ammon fought Israel. The elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob, or Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come to be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them to, up to me, Will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. 
Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders to Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So here we have the Israelites putting away their foreign gods once more and renewing their allegiance. And Yahweh, their covenant-keeping God, placed before them, casting themselves unreservingly upon his mercy. And as Israel gets together to face the, uh, the enemy, the Israelites realize that they have no leaders, as I said earlier. And the people lack confidence in their leaders. For far too long, those in leadership position had uh, furthered their own ends at the expense of their, uh, their families and, and their tribes. And so true leadership here is not a matter of inheritance, prestige, wealth, or even popularity but proven character and hard-won experience. And this is why they came to Zethan and found out that he was the one. The internal decay became evident when they faced an external threat that they couldn't find any leaders outside of him. Now, I'm sure that he uh, must have felt very proud when they did come. And because he said that you shunned me and ridiculed me, ran me out of town as a reject, as an outcast, as a leader, and now you're coming to me? So you see something in me, huh? We need to remember this is not a position that he had applied for. This is not something going for a job. Not something he worked for. Not something he no, uh, negotiated for. In God's own timing, God opened up the door for Zetha to be elevated to the position of chief and leader in Gilead. So principle to learn as a believer, we've been called to be faithful where we are in doing the will of God until God otherwise places us somewhere else. And this is what Zetha learned to do. He went with the elders to Gilead, it says, and the people made him head and chief over them, and Zetha spoke all his words before the Lord of Mizpah. You know, Charles Spurgeon was pondering his future, and especially in relation to his education one day as he was walking along. And uh, that night as he was thinking about it and, and wrestling with it in his mind and talking with God about it, he said that uh, he heard God say to him, Seeketh thou great things for thyself, seek them not. And at that moment, he said, I realized that I'd never go to Cambridge and I would never amount to anything more than preaching to a congregation of 200 people. He comment, commented to himself, uh, or he committed, excuse me, to himself, uh, himself to God and his will. And he said, uh, whatever the cost, I'm willing to do this. I'll stay here forever. Six months later, as a young man, only 19 years old, he was preaching to 2,500 people on Sunday in London. But it was in God's timing. That happened because he was willing to allow God to open the doors in his life, which meant that being faithful where he was was required of him, even if it meant the rest of his life. And that to leave God up, uh, leave God's will up to him, 
and his direction, his moving, and his opening the doors. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't go out and try to do this, try to do that? No, but we should be praying, and we should also be asking for God's guidance in it. It's not sitting back doing nothing. These men, but it, accepting, see, Spurgeon accepted it, and, and he was faithful where he was. And he was willing to be faithful where he was the rest of his life, if that's what it meant. So these men may have issued a call to Zephthah to be their, their leader, but it was God's call on, on Jephthah's life that led him their way. And so there's a period of negotiation here in verses 12 through 28. We won't read all these verses, but if you'll look at this, this is a very different role for Jephthah. He had been a warrior much like Robin Hood, and he had not had any negotiating terms, any negotiating training. And so this was all new to him. It seems uh, that he followed God's direction. He uh, entered into battle with Ammon. He was concerned to confront them, though, with the truth before he did. And we read of Zephthah having a firm grasp on God's truth here. Zephthah recognized that Israel's history was really God's history. It wasn't just Israel's history. Our life is God's life. I mean, what we go through, what we deal with, our history is God's history. So we, uh, we see that through uh, though Zephthah felt a need to negotiate with the enemy, one word was not in his vocabulary, and that was compromise. Zephthah asked the question, what is the problem? Why have you invaded Israel and are fighting against her land? And this gave the king of Ammon the opportunity to act prudently in a fair way. And so Zephthah gives the, uh, the king every chance to withdraw peacefully. And the king's reply was, because Israel took away my land the time of Joshua, so return it peacefully now. And here's where Zephthah tells the, the king of Ammon, check your history. He says, we captured the land from Sion, the king of the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Zephthah adds, check your logic also. For 300 years we have held the land and you have not done anything to recapture it. It's too late for native land claims now. Tough. And this was understood among the different nations. They understood this, this reasoning. But it was not accepted by the sons of Ammon. So next, Zephthah turns to the Lord for vindication. I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong to fight against me. May Yahweh the judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. In verse 27. This was not some off-the-cuff answer. It was an answer grounded in the truths of history. And Zephthah stood firm on fact. That is where all Christians should stand firm on. And that is fact. God's fact. The early Christians did not set their world aflame by experiencing opinions or expressing opinions and experiences. They set the world aflame by insisting upon the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. Our calling is the same. We do not go into the world telling others of our experience only, but proclaiming Jesus Christ first. 
if our experiences don't measure up to God in his word, then our experiences should not be relied upon that heavily. We, uh, we may add our testimony to what the truth says, but with that testimony may, uh, must go along with God's truth. That's the only way we can attack Satan, and that is by God's truth. We don't, we don't attack him by experience or feelings. And then there's a time of war. In verses 19 through 33, we won't read those, but the Ammonite king would not adhere to Zephthah's negotiation, but instead prepared for battle. And this is where we see the development of Zephthah uh, moving from an outcast all the way to a hero of faith. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Zephthah in, in verse uh, 29, equipping him for the task at hand. And God used Zephthah's skill for work, for battle, to work through him to defeat the sons of Ammonites. And it says, and the Lord gave them into, the, into Jephthah's hands in verse 32. So some things that we need to, to learn in closing is Jephthah did not sit back passively while God accomplished his will. God had him travel throughout the region, preparing him for this that he was calling him to do to gather his troops, to organize them, to develop a strategy, and to lead the attack. To be led by the Spirit is always to be led into activity and into the battle for God. It's not to sit back passively. Gideon was a weak man who was transformed by God into a fearless warrior. Zephthah was a valiant warrior willing to be used by God. Because of his family situation, he had to become strong to survive. And the story of his life is of God taking a strong man and by his spirit turning, in, turning him into a usable man. Whatever our strengths and our weaknesses, the secret of our usefulness is our availability to God. God's grace had taken Zephthah from the scrap heap of Israel and transformed him into the liberator of his people. The Lord delights in doing that. You see, no one is beyond his capability to use for his glory. And those are the people that he gets his glory from when he changes them. Are we allowing God to use us? No one in here should say, God can't use me. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God wants to use you. He desires to use you. And he has something very special for you to do. If we will just allow him to work in our hearts and our lives. But it's by faith, it's trusting in him, and it's being obedient with what we know to be obedient with until otherwise. Some may desire certain positions at work or wherever, but until God has us ready, we need to just be faithful in what we're doing, showing that we have those qualities to do the things that are ahead. Because God is always preparing us 
Nothing is wasted for him. And he's wanting to show us what we need to learn. Father, I just want to thank you for your love and your grace. I want to thank you that you desire to use us. God, that you desire to uh, 